So, um, thanks to all our listeners. I think um, we were voted like number fifty-two in the tech podcasts in uh, in India. So uh, we managed to survive our first podcast. <laughs> That's and, amazing. Uh, you know, and it's all gone to our head now because yeah. uh, we're in the uh, the tech podcast. We got to get top fifty this time, though. Oh, we? definitely. Yeah, we got to. Yeah, we were like two away. Yeah, but. Uh, that's fine. Um, we still haven't uh, we still haven't uh, <laughs> checked to see whether uh, uh, all of the amazing people that we've got in our India office uh, have listened to it like five thousand times each. So yeah, that's probably uh, what happened. Yeah, they might be quite biased. These stats. Yeah, and Manny's over there at the moment as well, so he's probably telling everyone, "Listen again, listen again, Yeah, that's right. Get us in the uh, the tech charts. Anyway, so um, it's really great to be uh, presenting number two of the uh, the podcast, isn't it, Andy? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting discussion today, I think. Yes, um, maybe um, maybe a little bit more contentious than last week. Even yeah, we need a disclaimer, don't we? Yeah, we need. We're gonna we're gonna upset a lot of people today. Yeah, maybe Gabriel can put like a really grand sounding disclaimer at the start. Yeah, I think that would be great. I mean, yeah. I, what was the last dis- disclaimer? Um, explicit language. Oh yeah, last one was explicit. <laughs> then try yeah. not to okay. swear at this time. Well, I mean. Or we could just say shit and get it out of the way. <laughs> okay, fine. This one's explicit too. Okay. Okay, right, there we go. So, um, so Andy, what are we talking about today? Because this was your topic and uh, it's a really good one. Yeah, so we've, we've, we've sort of gone through quite a few different <clears throat> iterations of what we've done um, in our careers and, and also in Elastocloud. And um, we've gone through a lot of different technologies and there's been some pervasive threads of skills that are inside those technologies. And some of those are skills to help you win uh, at life and, uh, and at programming and uh, at software um, and in technology overall. And some of them seem to be sort of dead end or skills to help you lose. So what, how do you know what a skill is that's going to help you lose? Because you want to avoid those things, right? Um, you don't want to get yourself into a dead end situation i know that we're we're doing a whole bunch of stuff at the moment taking people who have gone down career paths where the technology has been deprecated and then we're having to they now they end up wrongly skilled and we have to try and help them get their careers back on path but you know for me and you we haven't really made too many of those mistakes we've ended up using tech that that works and has had a good lifetime and we're still at the cutting edge and we keep being at the cutting edge and we have done uh, for far too many years now a couple of decades at least for me and so what are the choices that we've made in skill, in skilling ourselves uh, and skilling others that keep us on the, the path for winning and not the path for losing? So overall, loser skills. <laughs> I love that title, loser skills. Oh, it, it just it conjures up so many different things in my head. <laughs> um, I, do you know what? It might, it, might be, it might be worth me starting with a recap of this talk that I gave for the Green Software Foundation Summit because I think yeah. that this is like a great place to start our discussion of loser skills because okay so so when we're in the when we're in the summit um i the the green software foundation noble thing you know green software we spoke about it um i can't say i'm a i'm a huge believer at the moment um i'm not sure that they'll have the the impact that they they think they're going to have um but what i wanted to do was i wanted to bring home my perspective from a data engineering perspective and a lot of the a lot of the content on the GSF site was all about web development. And then, you know, you know, 
Andy, as well as I do, right? You go into a customer and you want to talk about, you know, that transition away from uh, enterprise data warehouse being the single version of the truth, right? And everybody thinks that they know and understand what the next step is in a data lake. Um, you've got all this confusion with like 100 different Microsoft patterns, Lambda architectures, Kappa architectures, yeah. you know, all of this terminology being flung at you. And uh, I guess my thesis in this talk, which was uh, only actually two slides, <laughs> well, two slides that matter, um, was <clears throat> was that basically 80% of the projects that are going on now in the cloud are data projects. Um, but um, none of the people that are doing these projects are skilled enough to execute <laughs> and get to a successful conclusion. And this kind of draws nicely into the loser skills because um, I guess my I guess my focus in the Green Software Foundation was that you have a lot of um, a lot of people who have got incumbent skills in SQL and then they transfer that to uh, big data platforms. And basically, they fuck everything up. <laughs> so I, I feel, <laughs> I feel like I can, I can, uh, I, I, I can swear now that we've 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 already got the explicit uh, yeah, yeah. thing on it. Um, and so, you know, it it sort of tallies in with the with the fact that, um, in and in this in this Green Software Foundation talk, it tallied in with the fact that because everybody's building this badly, they're expending too much compute. Yeah. Right. So it comes down to being able to train people so that they have the right skills, so that they don't waste too much compute, do things in the wrong way. Yeah. Like all these hacky workarounds, bringing all their on-premise bullshit for years to yeah. the cloud. Yeah. Right. So, so for me, this is the start of the the user skills concept. Yeah. Uh, the loser skills, user skills. Yeah. So. Lift and shift has has been a, an absolute bane, right? You know, when we when we started off in ElastiCloud, we we sort of said that that's the wrong way to do things. So you should rearchitect for the cloud and build things with the right techniques that were well, people call them now cloud native, um, but cloud approaches to things. Uh, and lift and shift though is about bringing stuff that isn't really fit for the cloud into the cloud so that you can maintain your existing. Skill base. Mm-hmm. That's a big motivator, isn't it? Like, yeah, definitely. Skills. So what tends to go wrong then when, when people do that? <laughs> oh, right. Now I'm going to be incredibly unpopular. <laughs> um, I'd definitely set you up for this one. Yeah, you have. Uh, so I think, I think this, is, this is almost certainly why. Um, we were looking at stats before. Gabriel pulled up some stats for us and for... 2017, 2018, there were some stats around failures of 85% of data platform projects in the cloud, right? Completely unsurprising, Mm. right? You have an entire generation of SQL people, and what they do is they bring their understanding of SSIS, right? Data lakes are not SQL, right? Spark, Hadoop, not SQL. And we've we've always maintained this this idea that... um, that Spark now, uh, Apache Spark, is a programmer's tool. Yeah. Right? Because it's a distributed computing framework. Yeah. You know, and putting the data in is accurate, but it confuses people who have data experience and have spent years learning SQL that they can just use their SQL skills on a big data platform. And I know I know from my perspective, you know, 
we've had uh, Darren and others on projects where they've just had their head in their hands because the uh, the way that some of these things have been done, right? So using metadata driven approaches to you know in the same way as you might have like built dynamic SQL, which was yeah. never a good idea yeah. with uh, all these uh, all these old um, uh, BIM approaches, right? All of that was carried to the cloud because nobody understood the right way to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one one of the things that really resonates with me is that we've in in our careers we've done one thing really well, which is to just to take that idea of the modern cloud data warehouse pattern and then customize it for you know for what we think are good tools and just get it working and keep rinsing repeat rinse and repeat between customers. Yeah, um, I think. I think the problem the problem that most people have in this space is that if you have if you have a bunch of people who've got very very incumbent sequence skill SQL skills and have been used to doing things in a certain way yeah then translate that into the cloud right everything becomes bottom up yeah so you have to drive metadata you have to you know we're pulling on all these tables we need to build a big framework to identify the tables identify the schemas you know and before you know it you've got Databricks, which is like a metadata management platform, um, and all the things that it wasn't designed for. Yeah, but you've made all the same mistakes that everyone always makes along the way. But it costs you much more because now it's bigger. It's big data. Mm-hmm. And then the, I guess the thing that we think about when we think about Spark and uh, even going back to Hadoop, um, it's a programmer's tool. You should be writing software in it, uh, and you use the framework that it provides to write the software in the right way and then hand it over to the runtime to distribute that software, but it's your software that works and that runs, and you have quite a lot of low-level control. Whereas in in a traditional database kind of environment, the database is the box and your thinking is inside the box and you configure you know, very much in-the-box thinking rather than out-the-box thinking that you need when you're doing stuff at scale. Um, so... It's, is it a difference between writing software versus using software? I guess so. I mean, you, do you, you remember in the early days of Spark, right? The way that you the way that you had to to use Spark was to be able to understand the Spark APIs, right, and understand the Spark um, context, and then um, build and compile a jar, which yep. was normally a fat jar. Then you had to um, then you had to run this through a bunch of um, Bash scripts, um, but that's how you bootstrapped everything. And I think the proliferation of notebooks have made it really, really easy for people to go, oh, I can just write a bit of SQL because yeah. Spark supports SQL. Yeah. Um, and without understanding concepts such as shuffle read, shuffle writes, data locality, partitions, um, all of the sorts of things which will trip you up, right, and make you spend an hour doing a job as opposed to a few minutes. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting stuff. The, I remember that so many times that uh, we've been asked to try and performance tune um, some massive SQL that's been running in, in, in inside a, a Spark context. And pretty much always you just throw it away yeah. and say, what do you actually want this thing to do? And we'll start again. Um, so there, there are... A, bunch of different things you can do in Scala and in Python and you can do stuff in, obviously inside uh, like Spark SQL as well. What do you do 
when you come up with that challenge? Where where do you go? What's the winner skills in that scenario? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I guess this is this is the problem. People don't stop and think, right, and understand the context of what they're trying to do, which you just hit the nail on the head. Um, don't understand data volumes. Mm. Don't understand where it's located. Don't understand how to partition it. You remember there was a there was a time with the when we started on the Hadoop on Azure tap, right, the only way to do things was to write intermediate data domains. Yeah. Right? You would have out of memory errors, you would it doesn't matter. You could have like hundreds and hundreds of nodes, right? But you'd always be tripped up on physical resources yeah. because it wasn't designed to be efficient. It was designed to be like a blunt instrument. Yeah. So so I think the thing is, as you know people were using Hadoop back then for far less data than they are today. And Spark has got loads of abstractions on top of it to make it much easier to do stuff like, yeah. you know, this amazing Delta Lake um, and Delta Live now, um, which are open source and also Databricks has its own um, own implementation of this. But, you know, unless you use it properly, right, <laughs> you know, you have all of the same problems. Yeah. Because data... Data needs to be close to the source, right? If you're running an aggregate somewhere, right, you need to make sure that that the code that's executing on a particular node on a Spark cluster, right, has access to that data locally. Otherwise, it has to move across the network. Sometimes it has to broadcast everywhere across the network and you end up with this broadcast mess of stuff shuffling all over the place, right? So everything you do to get these numbers down, right, is the actual performance tuning, right? But most... Most people don't start out with even trying to understand that, you know, in the number of times where I've been in situations in customer projects where customers just like got to a stage after messing around and writing a whole bunch of notebooks for months and then just call back into Databricks to go, no, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's not optimal. It's that, you know, and you sort of, you sort of rationalize and look through this code and how this has been done. You're what? <laughs> Who did this? <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, I remember so many times we, we've said um, that partitioning is king. I.O. partitioning is king. <laughs> yeah. Understanding what's in your files so that you can only read as little data as possible and still get the outcome. Um, and then we, did, we spent a lot of time working on Parquet and uh, getting really close to the low-level data formats. Um, and I think that's, it's an interesting thing then to realize that you're not just working with simple files that uh, are optimized, they're just like CSVs or something. Uh, instead, if you're working in Parquet, it's sort of sophisticated. It's got statistics baked into the file. It's in groups of, of columns and groups of rows within chunks of, of data where you can go and address certain things and get a good guess as to whether data's in there. But you don't get any of that if you're working in Hive, for example, mm. or you know, you're one of these abstract layers. So I think that that's the, that's the real loser skill, isn't it? That's the, that's the issue. It's the more abstract you are away from the fundamentals, the harder it is for you even to reverse back to the fundamentals to work out what the problems are. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And I, I mean, if I think back, if I th- it's, it's really interesting that you mentioned Hive, right? Because I've had, <laughs> I've had a lot of experience with seeing people who've moved into big data um, from SQL mm. and then initially gone 
through to Hive. Yeah, right? that, and that's the promise, isn't it? Hive's a, a SQL language for Hadoop. Then yeah. if they moved across, you can use it on other things now as well, can't yeah, you? Yeah, completely. And then, but, but then when you when you go through this, right? Because I I remember during my career when I when I worked with DBAs, and you would be looking at two thousand lines of stored procedures. Yeah, right. And you know, at the time, there was there's a difference between good and bad. But in most cases, you 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 have it's difficult to do certain things within stored stored procedures because you don't have the same semantics as you have in programming languages. Yeah, it's very very difficult to use patterns and practices. So basically, basically everything that you look at <laughs> as a as a software engineer, it's like the reverse of what you're used to, right? Yeah, where you can continually make things better and refactor. Um, so we tend to shy away from that and we just leave it to other people um, that for some odd reason like doing that stuff. Um, I guess my, I guess what I've seen and what I saw when um, Hive became quite a, you know, quite a, quite a big tool that was being used in Hadoop is that everybody brought that skill across mm. and then started writing these horrendous queries in Hive which looked exactly the same as these 2,000-line store procedures, yeah. um, but they ran like an absolute dog. Yeah. And there's a bunch of stuff around that, the, that behavior, um, the, the programming or development lifecycle in a SQL environment that came across as well, like a lack of source control. Like to developers like you and I, like um, <coughs> doing software without having a Git backend and being able to push up to a remote, to protect ourselves from overwriting our changes accidentally is it's a pattern that we get into because we don't trust ourselves with uh, the way that we work to like not just delete something by mistake and then we got not we don't have to worry about it because we've got a nice rollback pattern that comes from our you know control, source control system but you don't have that same thing because when you're writing SQL and you're committing stored procedures the default way that people do that is they commit into a, a dev environment and then they kind of script it out and they have it as a text file and that might go somewhere into into a git or something but the actual thing that gets deployed is editable uh, on the actual server so people tweak it and then there's not a natural pattern to then pull it out and then put it into a git it's like it's like an exceptional pattern it's not a business as usual kind of development um, approach pattern so you end up with so many times that we've been out places and we've been you know asking how can I get hold of, of your uh, environment or your, your script and oh it's in that text file over there like, just on a on a lake it just gets run it just gets bootstrapped on it and it's like that's crazy and um, the the approaches that we've got not just about source control but like reusability and you know um, modularity and, and things that we have in, in software from our software background I just don't think they they don't get copied into that mindset at all no so it's almost like we've got parallel universes of, of everything that we think is good practice and everything they think is good practice just don't marry up at all. Yeah, no, you're right. And I, I remember that there was a there was a T-SQL test framework which was a complete pain in the backside. Um, and, you know, when we when we built our SDLCs, it was so easy to unit an integration test and then all mm. of a sudden you had to have this adjunct for SQL. Um, so it's not, it's not in a... You know, it's not in a SQL developer's mindset, which is a problem. Anyway, I so I just want to pose my first loser skill. Okay, cool. Um, which it's not SQL no. because uh, SQL has its place, uh, which I think is in the last mile. Yeah, operational. Um, yeah, 
or operational. Um, but I think that it's um, it's sequel in Spark. Okay. I think I think it leads to bad habits. I think it leads to a lack of understanding of Spark's capabilities and how to do things really, really optimal. And um, you know, I understand why the Spark community did it because they want to incorporate as many people as possible from the SQL world, and that's great. And I think that some of these guys have like embraced this and they've learned Python and some of them Scala and really began to go on a software journey. Yeah. Um, but I think others haven't. Yeah, I, I'd agree. The overuse of of SQL as a as a syntax and as a as a structure of language is is very prevalent and um, happens in places like uh, that I work in as well with um, things like the Azure Digital Twin has got a, a SQL syntax and it makes sense sometimes. But you know we're expressing graph type um, queries which SQL isn't designed for like traversals and things like that. And you get to a point where it stops looking like SQL. And, um, and I think ADTQL um, is... Oh, yeah, yeah, ADTQL? No, it's, it's a really bad acronym. It's your digital twins query language. It, it's, um, it, it works... Didn't that used to be DTDL? No, that's the definition language oh, okay. of the shape, more like a schema. Right? Um, sure. But the, the way that you query it, mm-hmm. it is a select star from digital twins. Right. But... Because there are no tables, you just have to use aliases everywhere, and you join onto aliases, not onto tables, and then you have to have big filters at the end. It stops looking like SQL pretty quickly. So it's kind of useful, and then it becomes useless pretty quickly. Um, in, in ADT, there's, there isn't a lower-level thing. So I wouldn't say that it's a loser skill in, in that world because you can't go to a programmatic approach without also using ADTQL. It's the lowest level you can do. But it is like that prevalence of using it where it isn't really appropriate, and it leads you to having all of these different... ANSI SQL is like the subset of all SQLs, like the select from, join, where. Um, and then everything else that you get in all the other languages and all the other frameworks that's just not part of that, and it's just specific to that, it becomes really odd. Like, and if there was a superset of all SQLs out there, and we could look at how big it is, it would probably be a dictionary. Mm-hmm. Like, there's literally every single word and operator that you can imagine available somewhere <laughs> in some version of SQL or some SQL language. Right. And and it it stops them being something that you can just understand. Like you've got a version of SQL in your product, and you've got a version of SQL in your product, and they're not the same. Apart from select from where, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's a bit of an odd one, isn't it? Yeah, I I mean I I'm kind of curious because I know in I know in your world there are a lot of losers as well. <laughs> just in in the world of in the world of IoT and yeah. digital twin, there's a huge amount of failed projects. Mm. Um, and I think, um, Gabriel, you did some research and, you know, a lot of these projects don't even get through the first gate, do they? No, no. So they fail fail fast. Scratching yeah, it was, it's a good thing. We always <laughs> say failing fast is a good thing. Um, no, but the, in IoT, we have a, a different set of problems. Um, and they're not, um, they're not simple in terms of choosing the wrong technology. Um, it's that there isn't really a pervasive technology which goes across the end-to-end of, um, of any kind of IoT project. Um, and it, it's one of the few places, and I think the stats were like 33% of all projects fail in a pre, pre-production, um, which is obviously quite a lot not to get anywhere near production. Um, and the, the thing is, 
it's it's almost like going back in time a little bit iot I, and it's probably why i like it because it kind of talks to like being in the in the early 90s and late 80s and building computers um with these low level uh, circuit boards and stuff <clears throat> the thing about it is that you have to do the physical aspects of iot as well as the software aspects of it. And then you have to do the cloud aspects of it and then a data and reporting aspects. So an end-to-end in IoT starts with a, a sensor or a device and you have to network that device. You have to build that device or acquire one somehow and then you have to network it. So you're dealing with hardware and then network infrastructure. And then you're going to need to do something with that message. So you've got messaging, you've got securing that message as well. And then you, you move it up to the cloud and then you've got to process that message, and we start looking at software to, to do that. You also need software on the on the hardware at the start, but that's embedded stuff in totally different languages. And then when you get to the cloud, you then have to take the message, maybe put it onto a digital twin, which is message processing, contextualization. Then it enters effectively enrichment and uh, data history, and, and eventually it will sit on a data lake, and then you're into, let's use Spark, or let's use Azure Data Explorer, something else to get some insight on that stream of data. Um, and then you've got a reporting requirement at the end, and that might go into something like Power BI. And that end-to-end touches so many different things. Mm. And they've got totally different problems. Like, so um, the, uh, right at the start, in the physical aspect, how do you know how many sensors to put in a building? And if you put too few sensors in a building, because you're trying to be cheap or cost-optimal, uh, let's go with that. <laughs> if you're trying to be cost optimal and you, you only put one sensor by a door, well, it doesn't tell you anything else that's happening in the rest of the building, right? So occupancy, maybe people coming in or out, that's maybe gives you a, a good number for the, the overall floor. But we had a, a requirement the other day, um, and it was about assets that move. So they had trolleys. Um, think about, like, maybe cleaning trolleys in an in a office building. And they wanted to know where their assets were um, because they get left in random places, apparently. Mm. And all they had, though, was Bluetooth beacons, but one or two per floor, so like on the main entrances and exits, um, or by lifts. So all you could ever say is that we saw that trolley on the third floor at some point yesterday. You can't actually find the trolley because you haven't got enough sensors. And if you want to put more sensors in, you have to have sensors at every corner in every building, and it becomes prohibitively expensive to achieve that. So then that's that's a whole domain of cost optimization that's outside of technology, really. But you need to get that right before you can even start doing the, the IoT processing stuff in the cloud. And that's, you know, because it spans so many different skills, it becomes super tough. I think that through, through all that as well, you've got architectural issues. And this is, you know, my contentious um, loser skill is, is architecture, right? Architecture is something... Everybody's an architect these days. And what does architect mean? architecture mean? And um, we have loads of phone calls because in the IoT world, we actually talk to real architects and they just laugh at us. <laughs> and they just say, no, we're architects because we can make buildings stand up. What can you do? And we go, well, <laughs> we can use Visio, <laughs> maybe. Well, you can't, maybe. not no. if you install Office 365 because oh, it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't work right. anymore. So we can use PowerPoint. <laughs> And we can make pretty boxes have sensible t- labels underneath them. Um, and we can iterate on that until they become so complicated that it doesn't make sense to even the person who's created it. And then we can hand it over to some developers and they can have a really, really tough time figuring out what's going on. Everybody's a 
an architect really <laughs> these days. It seems like there's so many of them, but so few people do a good job of it mm. because it's it's seemingly just a, a, a way of describing overall skills without being associated with those skills as well. So it's about the application of skills that somebody else is going to do. And so the thing that I dislike about that um, is is that architecture without code kind of um, a- approach to architecture where it's it's like Visio architecture or PowerPoint architecture where the person who's doing that, doing the designing, has no intention of ever writing any of the code. Yeah. No. For me, an architect is like you or I when we draw a few boxes and then go, well, that kind of makes sense. I'll try that out and start doing the work. Right? Yeah. And, and real architecture then is the scaffolded out project in software in a, in a programming language that we can flesh out later. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I, I totally forgot architecture as a loser skill. It wasn't on my <laughs> list. And I think, I think that's because, we're, I mean, we're, we're forming our first architecture team at the moment, as you know. And um, uh, Antonio is uh, heading that up. I just actually had a call with him. And, oh, yeah? Yeah, and it's not really about the formal methodology crap that we have to do for all of our customers just to make them feel better about the fact that they've got all the designs and that they can go through. We've spent this and, amount of money on architecture, so it's got to work. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and so, and you know software doesn't work like that. Software no, is on, on a continuous improvement process. Changes like that, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so what... Um, we started. We we talked about putting meetings together. So I guess the the first difference is that um, there are no real architects in Elasticloud, are they? Not there's, really. No. There's there's people who we're giving that brand to who don't particularly care whether or not they have it. Who write code all the time and just think that they can actually move from building production platforms to proof of concepts. Yeah. Um, a few of them have got another thing coming, but I <laughs> <laughs> can believe that. Um, so, so I think, you know, I was, I was discussing this with Antonio before about formal methodology because Mm. formal design around capabilities models and high level designs and low level design and getting all that sort of granularity of detail in documentation. Um, it's just most, most document, most documentation and wikis that I see, right, completely incomplete until something goes wrong and then somebody will have to fill it in yeah. or somebody hasn't filled something in and then left. Um, so I, the problem that I have is that you can over-engineer a platform right right at the start if you put architecture ahead of that software process of yeah. what is it that we're trying to do. Let's build a proof of value to build this out. Yeah. Um, what frequently happens in the enterprise is really, really complex architectures with capability models, and then you have to go out and build them bit by bit. Yeah, um, and absolutely. So I think, I think one, of the, one, of the things that we, one of the things that we discussed earlier, because we're trying to build that architecture community in ElastiCloud, is really not to focus on any of these formal methodologies. So if you look at, um, I don't know whether you've read it, it's actually pretty pretty boring to read um but the microsoft well-architected framework yeah, and that, you know yeah. and there's and yes they're useful right they're useful as checklists of things just to make sure that you've covered anything but you know a lot of it's common sense practice anyway if you've been if you understand the cloud right so i think that that sort of fundamental understanding that you can only actually get hands-on is the starting point with anybody that's going to be doing architecture if they haven't done it Right, they shouldn't be drawing boxes on it. Yeah. Okay, because you don't understand the intricacies. Yeah. Um, and 
you know, being involved at the start and saying, right, here's the initial state diagram that you have to work with and then, you know, here's the final state, right? All the bits in the middle, <laughs> right, which, are, which are the hardship that software engineers have to go through banging their head against the wall because things don't work, APIs, you hit throttling limits, all the rest of it, that nobody's actually understood from the start because they've never done, they haven't been involved in building a prototype or everything is incredibly vacuous, right, at that starting point. You know, this is the this is the problem that I have with formal architecture, right? The, the, the starting point, it just isn't aligned with how yeah. you go through the software engineering cycle where you discover all this stuff and they're not part of it. Yeah, that's the, definitely the challenge to be a good architect. <coughs> it's to make sure that you're not doing that ivory tower thing where you're completely um, abstracted away from the actual implementation and you're just talking about this perfect state world without considering actually how everything works underneath it and what the actual dependencies and requirements are of each of the services that you're consuming. And I think we see too much of that, especially in the enterprise. You get this very special type of vaporware, um, which is a, a ream of architecture with zero software that actually associates to it. Um, or you, you get this this um, excellent sort of iterative development that happens where the architecture stands still and the, the software changes and you know, people actually fix problems, but they fundamentally shift how things work. But no one thought it was worthwhile going back to revisit the architecture, so no, that just doesn't make any sense. So I, I think for me, though, the, the big issue is a lot of people see architecture as a promotion. Yeah. And culturally, I think it's weird that, that that's what we do. We get people up to a senior dev and they're, they're delivering great stuff, and then they go, all right, what's the next step up? Yeah. Well, I can either go to team leader, dev manager, and and be completely irrelevant and useless or I can go and do architecture and be pretty irrelevant <laughs> and useless so I mean that's the interesting thing isn't it like how you and I aren't like that we, we, we're at the board level of, a, of an international right. company and um, we're <laughs> but sorry trying to sound humble when I said that um, but we still write code yeah so architecture wasn't something where we went and just said we're going to do architecture now at some point in our career we kind of rejected that and carried on just delivering yeah right yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, so because we've prob- probably got loads of other losers to cover, we'll, <laughs> <I'll>, <laughs> we'll, we'll be succinct with our list. So um, loser number one, um, somebody who writes SQL on a big data platform and doesn't understand that big data platform. Yep. Loser number two, um, an architect who doesn't write code. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So um, do we have a third loser? Third loser skill. Oh, I suggest the last one. It's your turn, man. Oh. Um, I think that I am going to. I'm going to be really contentious here because. Okay. Good one. Um, yeah. Gabriel and I had this talk before about K8. Um, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Uh. And um, I also gave a talk at Build. Um, about app deployment. So my, my views on this subject are not new. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I hate is the... And again, it's another architecture. It's another architecture principle. But the ability to make software portable between clouds taking precedence over um, developing the software itself. So you focus more on the framework than what the platform is. And it's one of my 
biggest bugbears yeah. because um, throughout our entire career, right, we've been dependent on services where Microsoft give us SLAs. Yeah. And if we don't, <clears throat> if we have to start thinking and managing infrastructure, right, it's a bad thing. This is what we're always taught from the start. Yeah. So I guess one of my biggest bugbears is when people build uh, microservices and um, they deploy these to very, very highly complex Kubernetes clusters um, and think about all of the frameworks, Helm and other bits and pieces and all of the ways that infrastructure has to be set up to make this work. This is one of the things that I hate. Yeah. and I'm I'm trying to commoditize this into a loser skill, but I'll give you an example of where I think this has been an absolute fail on one of the projects that we've been on, and that is when we when we tried to containerize a, a real time framework um, into Kubernetes um, to to bring in. Um, uh, I think it was. I think we were getting messages in one format on one queue, and we had to push them out into another queue. Yeah. Um, and containerizing it was easy, but then, um, but then combinations of Docker files, how to deploy this with KA and load balance it, and there were so many different things to think about. And I just thought, nah, yeah, nah, right? This is just too complex, you know. And I guess, I guess part of the issue that I have is that a lot of software devs have come up through this cycle now, thinking that anything that's built in a container framework. Right, is really really easy to deploy and manage um, until it becomes a live production service when it's an absolute fucking nightmare. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good one. Um, there's a, a huge prevalence in people using uh, Kubernetes in um, in our industry. It's like everyone starts there, which is it strikes me as crazy because um, what people are often not doing is solving problems with software. They're they're solving deployment issues with with their choice of software, and it's like doing DevOps before you've done Dev is is it's like that weird approach. Um, it makes a lot of sense to be able to put your software out on very easily, but you have to have software to want to deploy it. And if you focus on the wrong part of that stack early on, you don't get anything done, and you just end up spinning your wheels. Um, I I think there's a similar corollary as well to what in about 2005. So one of the things that was all the rage, you'll remember this, um, was ORMs. Mm, yeah. And, and the idea that you shouldn't go to the database yourself in an object-oriented code. Um, your data access tier should instead use a library that would generate the data access um, query, querying language, whether it be SQL or whatever, mm-hmm. and it would then issue the command and then marshal the results back to you yeah. as an object. And the way that was sold was like that, you know, at some point you might stop using SQL Server and want to go on to Oracle, mm. or you might want to go into MySQL or something else. And in my career, the number of times that I've used a, an ORM is probably like 100, and the number of times that that ORM has ever been retargeted away from the original database. Oh, wow. Zero. Wow, I've Zero never really thought about it in those terms. Yeah, it, it, like you never do it, right? You yeah. never swap from... It just never happened. Yeah. And if you ever tried it, it would be such a difficult nightmare. The performance characteristics would be so different that your app, you'd have to re-architect it anyway. Yeah. So the, the myth of the p- 
performance or the productivity gains in the future is just that. It's a myth. Of course, yeah. And that's the same. So if you're deploying through a framework for portability, are you ever going to leave Azure and go somewhere else? We were talking about this the other day, right? Has anybody ever? <laughs> and, and I think I think the thing is, the people that make these decisions are already using three clouds. Yeah. Right? So yeah. why not use the best of each of the three? I mean, and if you're one of those companies that's selling SaaS products across multiple clouds, it makes sense. But if you're not that and you're just targeting one cloud, using the framework that helps you target multiple probably doesn't make much sense. If you're on an internal business app and your business is all in on Azure, mm-hmm. it's a myth and a, and a lie that you're telling yourself that you have to be able to target something else in the future. Because if your director of IT comes to you and goes, we're moving off Azure, we're going on to Amazon, yeah. he's going to come with a big fat checkbook to say, this is the money you can spend on re-architecting it. Mm-hmm. And if you go, oh, I can just do that by just porting it over there, and then you do that, and then next week he comes back to you and goes, why is the performance so shitty? Yeah. Oh, well, that's because it's architected the, for Azure, but it's running on Amazon and uh, everything's different and everything's slower in different scenarios now. He's not going to be particularly happy that you save productivity only to waste productivity with a whole different set of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think I think the other thing to say about Kubernetes, which I think is the biggest lie, because I've seen this, I've seen a whole load of app developers like argue this, and then they've basically gone and deployed their, all their containers to either EKS um the Elastic Kubernetes service in AWS or AKS in Azure, yeah. right? Which is a platform service anyway, yeah. with its own command and control. You know, AKS uh, has access to um, the Azure container service, mm-hmm. right? So there's all these intricacies, right, that link it yeah. to Azure, yeah. right, and stop you from being able to move it. Yeah. So why use it anyway? <laughs> you know, when there are, I mean, uh, I remember, I remember years ago when we were building. Um, applications which haven't done anymore. We were big fans of the Service Fabric for a time, yeah, you know, and uh, there was the Service Fabric Mesh, yeah. and um, you know, we obviously haven't done that kind of development in a while. But it made much more sense to do that because it was the best of the platform. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Okay, so how do we how do we turn that into a loser skill? Oh, that's a good, it's a tough one, isn't it? And it's it's almost like um, the um, <coughs> skills in portability rather than in uh, in portable software rather than in software. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, application developers who don't use the best traits of any cloud, yeah, or who use the worst traits of every cloud. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Mm, interesting. So many people spring to mind yeah. when I say that. I'm glad this is recorded, actually, because that definition is something that I'm going to go back to. Yeah. Um, do we have time for one other loser skill? Project managers, <laughs> Gabriel. Gabriel. Gabriel, you are a superstar. How could we forget that? Oh, Gabriel in the corner just throwing people under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Andy, I'll let you go on this because I'm just going to make so many enemies. I don't oh. want too many projects at the moment. Yeah, well, I think it mirrors a little bit the um, architects who don't write code. Mm. It's project managers who don't know technical stuff. Yeah, um, I've been on um, many calls with project managers and product owners as well who say, I'm not technical, but... 
and they start sentences with that <laughs> phrase. I'm not technical, but. And then what comes next is, is, is like just mental. It's just insane. Whatever they say next is like blah, 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 blah. I'm not technical, but I, I don't see why I can't have a button to turn that on on the moon. It's yeah. like, <laughs> okay, I could tell you lots of reasons why you can't have a button on the moon to turn on something on Earth. Yes. Um, they're, they're relatively technical. They involve the fact that you're not on the moon. Um, but it's, it's systemic with people who refuse to be technical. Yeah. And I say to people all the time, you're in a technical company. Elastica is a technical company. Um, you've got to be technical. You have to, everyone has to aspire to be more technical. And you know, the Richard and Andy vision of the future is everyone's a technologist and everything is increasingly technical. People don't get away. No one gets a pass by going, I don't understand the world. I don't understand that. All this newfangled nonsense, I don't get it. And so if you want to engage with developers and you want to understand how they're delivering and their productivity and your job is to help them be productive, abstracting yourself away from absolutely everything that they do is a bad way to approach the problem. You know, to to say... Because I'm not technical, I'm not going to try to understand how my product actually works is a bad way to approach the problem, right? You need to know the services that it consumes, the, the, the limitations that they have, the price points that they have. You need to understand how your bill is going to come back to you. So that's a technical thing. Like a, a bill from the cloud isn't a commercial thing. It's a technical thing because you've got to understand all the different line items and why are they coming through. Why is it that it costs me more over here rather than over there? And what data centers should I deploy to? And if I start deploying to multiple data centers, does it cost me more money? And the, the reality is that if you're not technical, none of that makes any sense. It's just like, well, what is all this nonsense, virtual computers and, and all this? That doesn't make any sense to me. So what, what drives me absolutely up the wall is, is people who are on technical projects in a technical company delivering technical thing with an entirely technical team who start with that phrase, I'm not technical, but... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. I mean, this this should probably be a whole topic for another another program. <laughs> we could have I a do. topic, I'm not technical, but... The next yeah, I do, I do agree. There's a loser skill in there, and I, yeah. think, I think Gabriel logged that because I'm not technical, but has to be maybe, maybe the next one. Okay, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I remember having a conversation with um, with uh, with someone in in our company, and I said, I said when somebody when somebody in Elastic Cloud who is technical um, moves into a role like a product owner or a project manager, um, a little piece of me dies. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just wanted to I wanted to give you um, and. Uh, I, I hope she's listening because it's a real testament to her. But um, you and I, you and I um, uh, took Luce back on. Oh yeah, um, yeah. As uh, as our PA, um, we um, we're slowly getting into our into our sync with Luce, or at least I am. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, you need more help than me. Uh, and uh, and Luce's been brilliant. She's um, she's been managing my diary, and um, and then this thing came up um last week where um i asked lou to help me because i didn't have the time to to do this piece in excel and so um she <laughs> i get this absolutely incredible excel spreadsheet back with bits of vba in it and power pivot and <laughs> <laughs> i'm like Lucy, you're an excel ninja yeah right? 
I'm gonna put you on a on a Power BI course now. Yeah. So then she went on yeah. MJ's yeah. Power BI course. And um, MJ's feedback was, she's going to be brilliant at BI. <laughs> you've, you've just lost your PA because wow. um, you know she will she will get seconded into the BI team That's really quickly. So, so, so our PA lasted about a week. Did it? Yeah. Our PA lasted about a week. But you know, um, so Luther's going to aspire to that. I hope yeah. because I think that that will be a great career path for her anyway. Yeah. Um, while she um, while she has to, you know. <laughs> has to suffer us, yeah. right? which is torment. Well, you've got to give her an um, escape path from from the torment that is our calendars. Right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, but uh, but a part of me was really happy with that. Yeah, because totally. you know, I think I think there's a techie in everyone, right? And just finding that sweet spot that you know, I love data, or I love to be able to to present data visually, or yeah. you know, any of these aspects. Right, everybody has that inspiration right so to be able to fuel that yeah. i think is uh, is really something yeah absolutely it's great mm. go loose yeah totally well i think that's probably us coming to our time limit um so just to recap our loser skills andy <laughs> <laughs> andy's top of our loser. no i didn't mean that um i didn't mean that uh what i actually meant was andy could you you list the yeah, so so it's um, people who use uh, SQL in a big data framework, and that abstracts them from understanding the the big data framework itself. Okay, um, it is architects who don't code. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the people who uh, prematurely optimize for portability, um, which I, you said better before. I forgot how you said it. I think it was something along the lines of application developers who use the worst of every cloud. Oh, that's it. Yeah, the worst of every cloud. And uh, the people that Gabriel wants to throw under the bus as well, <laughs> project managers. Uh, I'm not technical, but we'll dive into that more in a future episode. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, and I uh, hope you enjoyed the program. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.